Good morning. So, I want to start off this morning with an unusual story. So, I brought pictures. I've got to turn this on. I brought pictures. All right, so, once upon a time, there's a sunbird. Now, here's what you've got to know about sunbirds. He's a bird. He's also the sun. It's pretty simple. And uh, the thing you've got to know about this particular sunbird is that he's also a skilled gardener. So this sunbird is flying around, and he saw this tree, and he's like, you know, I want that tree. So he took the top of the tree, and he brought it back to his, his, his place where he lives, and he decided he's going to plant it in this really, really great place. So there's, like, water there and really fertile soil, and he puts the tree there, uh, and instead of a tree, it starts to sprout and become a vine. And that's what he wants. He wants this to be a vine, not a tree. Uh, and the thing where this, the sun part comes into this is because he's part sun, part bird, uh, it grows toward him because he's a sunbird. Well, drama ensues, and another sunbird shows up. But here's the thing about this sunbird. Uh, not all sunbirds are created equal. This one knows nothing about gardening. And uh, the plant, though, doesn't know that. And so it starts to point toward this new sunbird, and then it decides it's going all in. So it pulls up its roots out of the fertile soil, and it points them toward the new sunbird, too. And this, as you can imagine, goes very poorly for the plant. It dies, and everyone is sad because the plant's dead. Now, you're probably wondering, Brent, what kind of story is this? That, that is a weird way to start a sermon, and you'd be right. But this is pretty close to, at least, a Bible story. Now, you may be like, what? No, you're pulling the wool over my eyes. And I, I will admit, took a little bit of poetic license here. But if you turn to Ezekiel 17, we're going to be studying Ezekiel 17 and the story of the eagle and the vine. And uh, this is sort of an unusual story. And so I decided that we should take some time this morning to study it and to read this parable that Ezekiel uh, puts forth and learn from it what can we glean from this. So, Ezekiel 17 uh, we'll start in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, propound a riddle, and speak a parable to the house of Israel. Say, thus says the Lord God, a great eagle with great wings and long pinions, rich in plumage of many colors, came to Lebanon and took the top of the cedar. He broke off the topmost of its young twigs and carried it to a land of trade and set it in a city of merchants. Then he took of the seeds of the land and planted it in fertile soil. He placed it beside abundant waters. He set it like a willow twig, and it sprouted and became a low-spreading vine, and its branches turned toward him, and its roots remained where it stood. So it became a vine and produced branches and put out boughs. And there was another great eagle with great wings and much plumage, and behold, this vine bent its roots toward him and shot forth its branches toward him from the bed where it was planted, that he might water it. And it had been planted on good soil by abundant waters, that it might produce branches and bear fruit and become a noble vine. Say, thus says the Lord, will it thrive? Will he not pull up its roots and cut off its fruit so that it withers, so that all its fresh sprouting leaves wither? It will not take a strong arm or many people to pull it up from its roots. Behold, it is planted. Will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind strikes it, wither away on the bed where it is sprouted? So, as you can see, this is the story that Ezekiel tells. 
And it's a parable. It's a riddle. There's something we're supposed to learn from it. But I want to pause here for a second before we read, because Ezekiel's going to explain the parable. But I think this is, a, this is a special time here. Because so often we study parables that we already know pretty well. And if you're like me before a couple weeks ago, you're not quite sure where this is going to go, what the ending of this is going to be. And I think that's an exciting place. Because it's not often that we find ourselves hearing a story from the Bible the way that it would have originally been heard. With the kind of wonder and excitement of, well, what can this mean? And uh, you can start to think, like, well, what, what is this about? What is the meaning of the peculiar parable of Ezekiel 17? And uh, so I'll give you some background, and then maybe you can make a guess, and then, and then we're going to read, we're going to figure out what this is. So uh, Ezekiel is a prophet, and this particular prophecy is probably somewhere around 590. So uh, in 597... Uh, the Babylonians came and took this first wave of captives from Babylon, or from Judah, and brought them to Babylon. And among these are some of the best of the best. Uh, Ezekiel was included, uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from some of the other stories, um, and all the, the ruling classes, the princes and the king. And they're brought to Babylon. And here we find Ezekiel prophesying to this group of people in Babylon this parable. And so, if you're like me, as you're trying to guess, you know, what's this parable about? I, a very good guess would be uh, not only what is the meaning of Ezekiel 16, uh, but also a common biblical motif. That maybe God is the eagle, and that he brought these people out of Egypt, and he was gonna, you know, they were going to be a really strong vine, but then they turned after other gods, and they just made a mess of themselves, and so they had to die and get sent to, uh, to Babylon as punishment. And that would be a really great guess, uh, but that's not what this parable is about. Instead, the eagle is not God yet. It's Babylon. So, let's read... Ezekiel 17, verses 11 through 14. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Say now to this rebellious house, Do you not know what these things mean? Tell them, Behold, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem, and took her kings and her princes, and brought them to him in Babylon. And he took one of the, ro the royal offspring, and made a covenant with him, putting him under oath, the chief men of the land he had taken away that the kingdom might be humble and not lift itself up, and keep his covenant, that it might stand. So as I already said, uh, in the first few verses, it's gonna, it talks about the king of Babylon comes, and he takes uh, the king and the royal offspring. Uh, so Nebuchadnezzar came, and he took the king, namely Jehoiakim, uh, to Babylon. But this isn't like a terrible captivity. Uh, Jehoiakim has a pretty sweet deal. He gets to eat with the king of Babylon, and it goes... It's pretty all right for him. And obviously, they're slaves a little bit, but not like slaves like they were in Egypt. So, it's a relatively peaceful deal. Uh, taxes are involved, but for most people, day-to-day -day life continues about as it would. Uh, and so, the other next part of this, in verses 13 and 14, it talks about, since he took all the princes and the kings, they needed a new king in Judah to keep up with the stuff that's going on there. So he gets Zedekiah, who is also from the royal offspring, and uh, he makes him king. And so he says, Zedekiah, uh, here's what I want you to do. 
you got to rule here. you got to keep things in order. Don't rebel. Uh, pay your taxes. Be a good king. Make sure everything goes fine. And Zedekiah is like, yep, I can do that. Uh, so we've got our three characters so far. We've got Nebuchadnezzar, king of, of Babylon. Zedekiah, who is currently ruling in Judah. Jehoiachin, or Ken, who was taken from Judah. And I'm going to introduce one more character. Hopefully you can keep them all straight. This guy is named Semeticus II, Pharaoh of Egypt. And we're going to call him Sammy II. So Sammy II gets introduced here in the next few verses. Let's read uh, verses 15 through 18. But he, that is Zedekiah, rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt, that they might give him horses and a large army. Will he thrive? Can one escape who does such things? Can he break the covenant and yet escape? As I live, declares the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells, who made him king, whose oath he despised, and whose covenant with him he broke, in Babylon he shall die. Pharaoh, with his mighty army and great company, will not help him in war when the mounds are cast up and the siege walls built to cut off uh, many lives. He despised the oath in breaking the covenant, and behold, he gave his hand and did all these things. He shall not escape. So, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, says, Zedekiah, are you going to be a good king? You know, swear to me. And he says, yes, I swear by Yahweh God, I will be a, a good king. We're going to not rebel. And then pretty much immediately, he starts getting in cahoots with Sammy too down in Egypt. And they decide they're going to team up and try and fight Babylon. And this goes very, very poorly for them because... As you probably know, Babylon is an absolute machine at this point in history, and it's pretty hard for anybody to take them on. So they team up, they try and fight Babylon, it does not work, and uh, Zedekiah ends up in a really bad situation. And where Nebuchadnezzar was previously going to be kind of a nice king, and it was going to be all right, now he's going to put on his angry eyes, and most of Judah now gets taken captive as a result of Zedekiah's actions. So, we've got our story here. We've read this far. But as you can see, there are no points on the screen. And I think if I go too much longer without pointing points up on here, you guys will uproot me. So, here's the first point. I want to say that God's way is the only way. And this might seem like an odd place to start, but let's, let's think for a second about this story of Zedekiah. So, Zedekiah, and I'll be turning to Jeremiah 27 as I'm talking. Zedekiah... He's, he's the king. He, he told the king of Babylon that he was going to be good, that he wasn't going to break the covenant. But all along, this, he's thinking to himself, you know, I don't really want to be in captivity to Babylon. Uh, that's, that's not his ideal world. So he teams up with Sammy too to try and take on Babylon. But here's the thing. He knew what God had already said, which is in Jeremiah 27. We'll read the first seven verses. It says, In the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus the Lord said to me, Make yourself straps and yoke bars, put them on your neck, send word to the king of Edom, the king of Moab, the king of the sons of Ammon, the king of Tyre, the king of Sidon, by the hand of the envoys who come to Jerusalem, to Zedekiah, king of Judah. So he says, tell everybody, all the nations, you got to know this. Verse 4, give them this charge for their masters, 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, This is what you shall say to the masters. It is I, who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with men and animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. So, God says, I am God, I am sovereign, and this is what's going to happen. All of the nations, basically the whole known world, uh, is going to be taken captive by Babylon. That Nebuchadnezzar is going to take them captive, and the Nebuchadnezzar's son and his grandson are going to rule over the people. In other places, Jeremiah tells them, it's going to be 70 years they're in captivity. And you can hear Zedekiah hearing all of this stuff. He's ruling in his land, but he's like, I don't, I don't want to be subject to Babylon. 70 years, that sounds like a really long time. You know, I'm just not sure I want to do that. And so he calls up Sammy too. He says, Sammy too, let's hatch a plot. Let's try and fight Babylon. And as we learned, that went really, really poorly for them. And this... It's applicable to us as well. I mean, there are so many times where God tells us, this is what you're going to do. This is how things are going to work out for you. This is what I expect from you. And we hear that and we're like, you know, I just, I don't really want to do that. I mean, that's a, that's a long time to wait. I mean, let's look in Matthew 5. It says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Matthew is saying, look, you know, you, you shouldn't worry that you're being persecuted because when life is over, you're going to have a great reward in heaven. And I can just imagine so many people in the world today hearing this and saying, ah, in heaven, I mean, you're telling me I've got to live a whole life being persecuted before I get my reward? That's, that's a really long time to wait. What if I just like blend in and I, I don't get persecuted? Or even better, what if I just like start punching people? No one's going to persecute me then. Like we try and find our own ways and it, it doesn't work. And there are so many of these, these commands that God gives us that we hear them and we're like, you know, I don't really want to do that. You know, if you have a problem with your brother, go to him. Uh, you know, children, obey your father and mother. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. Help, you know, help the poor. Like all of these things, we're like, you know, I could do that or I could not do that. And as we see this cautionary tale of Zedekiah and the choices that he made, we need to hear very clearly that that is not a good idea. That God's way is the only way. Because if Zedekiah had just listened to God, if he had just understood that they wait, they're patient, they follow the rules, then it, things would have been all right for them. It would have been better. But no, he decided he was going to go his own way. He was going to try his own plan. And it backfired on him very, very badly. And we know many Proverbs that, that tell us this same sort of thing. We're told in, in Proverbs 16 that there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end is destruction. But contrast that with Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. So there's the way that seems right to us, but it leads to destruction. And there's the way that God tells us, and it is healing to our flesh and refreshment to our bones. And in the moment, it doesn't always seem that way. In the moment, we can lose track of things because we have such a short-sighted view. 
But when we take a step back and we realize that God's way is the best way, and we can see that in so many stories throughout the Bible, we start to realize that in times of trial, when we're faced with what should we do? Should we follow God's way or should we try and, fa- try and forge our own path? We've got to follow God because God's way is the only way. Next point I want to make here is that God is not going to sit idly. So let me ask you something. If you got a new credit card and they said, whatever you don't pay off at the end of the month, we're going to charge you 25% interest. Would you be like, ah, they're probably not going to do that. Or would you like listen to them and pay off your credit card? If you are a student and your teacher says, I don't accept late work, whatever you turn in after it's due, go straight in the trash, it's a zero. Are you going to be like, ah, they probably don't mean that. I'm just going to you can take my sweet time on my work. Or if you're at work and your boss says, if you don't stop showing up late, there are going to be repercussions. You're like, ah, he doesn't really mean that. No, I can't speak for your credit card company or your teacher or your boss, but I can't speak for God. God does not sit idly. He does not make idle threats. And if we expect that we can trample all over his law and that he's not going to do anything about it, then we've got another thing coming. And a very similar thing happens in, in this story with Zedekiah. So, as I mentioned earlier, Nebuchadnezzar makes Zedekiah take a, uh, an oath, a vassal treaty. And what we know about these, uh, these Babylonian covenants is that they would make the people that they subjected take an oath by their own nation's God. So Zedekiah would have sworn by Yahweh God that he was not going to break the covenant or else you know, let God strike him dead or all the curses of the covenant come upon him. And for him to make this treaty, to invoke the name of the Lord, and then to turn around and break the treaty is definitionally a break of the third commandment. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. And so this, this shows that Zedekiah didn't think God was really going to act. He, it, he didn't really imagine that God was going to do the things that he said, God, do this to me if I break this covenant. It shows a total disregard for God's activity in this world. And we can live the same sort of way, that when there are things in this life uh, that we don't want to do, that we, we don't do them. Or we break God's law and we think, ah, it's not really that big of a deal. We've got this you know, whole narrative that, oh, I mean, I'm just a good person, and if I'm just a, a good, you know, God's going to overlook the little things. I'm going to tell you, guys, this has been Satan's deception since the beginning. That he told Adam and Eve, did God really say that? Did he really mean that you were going to die if you eat the fruit? And there have been all of these times throughout history where people have thought, you know, it's, it's not that big of a deal. But God shows them that if God says something, we need to take it seriously. And if he says, these curses will come upon you if you break my law, then they, that happens. And if God says that these kinds of people are destined for destruction, then we should take that very seriously seriously. And there are all of these times, all of these people who say uh, there is no God and they just do whatever they want. Or there are scoffers, we're warned, that in the last days they're going to come scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They're going to say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They say, look, everything happens cyclically. God's not really acting. It's not that big of a deal. You don't need to worry. And I'm here to tell you that this story and so many others in the Bible remind us that it is critical that we do not take God's threats idly. That when God says he is going to bring judgment on us, that he means that. 
that he is serious. And if you are living your life presently as if he doesn't, then take this as an encouragement to not do that because it is dangerous and God means what he says. And this is shown in this story as we'll, as we'll read. Let me read verses 19 through 21 with you. So before this, uh, Ezekiel was saying that he had despised the oath, the general oath, but now it changes from an oath to God's covenant. In verse 19, Therefore thus says the Lord God, As I live, surely it is my oath that he despised and my covenant that he broke. I will return it upon his head. I will spread my net over him, and he shall be taken into my snare, and I will bring him to Babylon and enter into judgment with him there for the treachery he has committed against me. And all the pick of the troops shall fall by the sword, and the survivors shall be scattered to every wind, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. Zedekiah did not take God seriously, and it went very poorly for him. Now I want to make my final point, and that is that God is not done yet. Let's go back to our story. We're going to read the last uh, verses here, starting in verse 22. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, and it will bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree, and I make high the low tree. Dry up the green tree, and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it. Note three things really quick textually here. One, obviously, we're picking up on this sunbird story again. That God says, now I am the bird. Now you are the, the branch twig thing, fine. And I am going to plant you. This is going to work this time. Now you will be the cedar that you were always destined to be. Verse 23, you'll recognize this language from the parable of the mustard seed, that there's going to be a giant tree and all life will find uh, dwelling and shade under its branches. And finally, verse 24, that should give you a hint as to where this is going. And finally, in verse 24, we're going to get some stock reversal language. And this is, of course, you know, all over the Bible. You think, uh, you know, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Uh, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is a regular sort of thing that we see throughout the Bible. And that's, that's where I want to start as we explain this final point. To say that God is not done yet. Because right now, right now they're in captivity. Right now, it's not looking so great for Judah. God's people, his vine, his pride and possession. And that could lead them to fear, lead them to think, you know, maybe God's done with us. Maybe this is the end of the road for Judah. Maybe it's all over. And God says, no, it's not. God says, I have something better in, my, in mind for you. That right now, you might be small, but God is capable of taking the small and making them great. Making, taking the great and making them small. And it shows this at a passage we read already in Jeremiah 27. As it's talking about the future of what's going to happen. All the nations shall serve him, that is Nebuchadnezzar, and his son and his grandson, until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. He says, right now, 
Nebuchadnezzar is the top dog. But there's going to be a time when his time will come. And then it'll be the Persians. And then it'll be the Greeks. And then it'll be the Romans. And constantly there's this churning of life that nations rise and nations fall. And just as the dry trees flourish and the, the green trees are dried up, God is constantly churning through nations. But there's one nation that is not being churned through, and that is God's people. One day, at the end of time, they will rise and they will not fall. One day, God is going to make his people the great tree that all the nations of this world can go to. And so, now we move back to verse 23, that there is hope. There's hope for their future, not just that they're going to be raised up, but that they're going to be a, a na- a, something powerful that all nations, all the people of the world can find hope in. And we see this, I mean, in all kinds of Old Testament passages. I'll show you four really quick. Amos 9. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen. Haggai 2, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. That's you know, that reversal language. Micah 4, all the people shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the house of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways. Zechariah 8, in those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. That the future, the hope for Judah is found first in Jesus, when he comes, when he establishes his kingdom. And all people, Jew and Gentile, from all over the world, they can come and they can learn about God, they can be saved, they can find refuge and peace in the kingdom of God, under the boughs of the tree, the cedar, that God has planted. But there's still a sense in which we're waiting. Because as the author of Hebrews says, we do not as of yet see all things subjected to him. That one day, all the world will know and recognize God as the ultimate power. All the world will see God's kingdom as the kingdom. But that hasn't happened yet. We're still waiting. We're living in a now but not yet. As we await a day when God will come, when God will make all things perfect, where God will make due on all of his promises and that we will be a part of the kingdom that God has been creating for all of time to be the kingdom that all the world can see and either fear or be a part of. And so, how do all these points relate as we wind up real quick? We started with saying that God's way is the only way, but sometimes there are things that we say, you know, I don't, I don't really want to do that. And that is fueled by the second part, that we think that maybe God's not really going to do what he says he's going to do, that it's not that big of a deal if we break his laws. And if we don't, if we don't believe that God is really going to make do on the things that he says he's going to do, well then, why is it a big deal that we do things God's way? Because eh, it's not really that big of a deal, nothing's going to happen. But if we understand that God does not sit idly, that he does punish evildoers, then we need to be aware, and we'll have more motivation to do things the way he uh, would have us do, but the second, this final point also fits into that paradigm, that God's not done yet. That if we're here and we're living in this world where we think, ah, you know, what's the point? I mean, we're, our nation's dying anyway. I can't save us from Babylon. What do I do? But there's hope that says God's not done yet. That it is not in vain that we have kept our hearts clean. That we, when we follow God, we get to be a part of a greater kingdom, a greater 
generation, a hope that God has been planning since the beginning of time that we can be a part of his kingdom. And don't you want to be a part of that? And so today, we've learned about this weird story about a sunbird. We've learned that God's way is the only way. We've learned that God will not sit idly when we break his commandments. And finally, that God has something better in store for us. And so as we await and hope for that better day, let us stay true to what God would have us to be. Thank you so much. We'll now be dismissed to class.